Scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And this is God's word. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on my head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. The angel of the Lord was standing by. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Thank you for the prayer, Joel. Uh, Good morning. It's good to see all of you. Kind of a gloomy day, isn't it? But God is good. All right, all the time. I wanted to introduce a few newcomers joining us for the first time. Uh, I just met Sam. I think you said John last name. Sam John. Okay, great. He's sitting right next to Billy over there in the middle. If you raise your hand quickly for us, let's give Sam a warm welcome. Great to have you, brother. I also have uh, Esther. I'm not sure what the last name is, but Margaret's friend in the back. Let's uh, give a warm welcome to Esther sitting all the way in the back. All right. And also I have a Daniel. Where's Daniel? Also in the back over there, I think, sitting next to Jennifer. Let's give Daniel a warm welcome. And uh, Brandon and Emily have been coming out, I think, for a few weeks, but I believe Emily's mom is joining us uh, for the first time over there, and she's sitting over on that side. So let's uh, give Emily's mom a warm welcome. All right, great. So today we're uh, continuing our series in this um, pretty surprising book, right? It's been a blessing personally for me, uh, the book of Zechariah, and we're going to reflect upon a portion of chapter three together today, okay? And as we've been saying, Zechariah was given eight visions all in the same night, and he was called to share these visions with God's people in order to offer them comfort and hope as they were in the process of rebuilding their lives after uh, suffering in Babylon during exile. And so today we'll be reflecting upon the fourth vision, which is a surprising interaction between three noteworthy characters in this heavenly courtroom scene. Okay, first we see Joshua, who was the high priest at the time. You know, we're not to confuse this Joshua here with the one who led people, led God's people into the promised land. Right, my my six-year-old Joshua was named after that Joshua, right? The Joshua who led God's people into uh, the promised land after Moses. Uh, This Joshua here is a different Joshua. He's a high priest, but he's dressed in filthy garments. And in legal terms, he would be called the defendant in this court case because the second character we see is Satan himself, who is present as what we would call the prosecutor or the accuser. He is a great accuser here. And this should immediately signal to us that there's something insidious in play here because Satan, as you know, uh, he is the great deceiver. That's how the Bible portrays him. He is a great deceiver, meaning that his entire existence 
is to tempt people uh, to sin, right, to disobey God, and so that uh, they would become defiled and filthy. So look, he, he's basically acting as a corrupt prosecutor in this passage, right? He's someone who, who loves to throw dirt on people and then accuse them of being dirty. <laughs> That's the kind of character he is here. That's one of his main traits. And there are many followers of him who act in the same way, right? You may know some of them. But thankfully, there's a third character in this courtroom scene who stands in stark contrast to Satan. He is none other than the angel of the Lord, who we said is the pre-incarnate Christ, and he's seated as the judge in this heavenly courtroom. So this morning, we're going to see how this scene plays out and what lessons we can learn from it. Now, the first thing I want you to understand is that the high priest was someone who directly represented God's people as their mediator. That's why in the Old Testament, there are all sorts of ceremonial laws, essentially purity laws that the priests had to keep in order to keep themselves pure, right? Uh, in order to uh, keep themselves qualified to actually conduct their priestly duties. And so the fact that Joshua here is clothed in filthy garments poses a real problem. Now, it's possible that this vision could mean that either Joshua himself was morally compromised or that as the representative of God's people, he was simply serving as a reflection, a genuine reflection of the moral state of God's people in that time. Or it, it could be both. It could be, both could be true, right? Because in most cases, right, our leaders are essentially a reflection of who we are. Are they not? Have you ever wondered how it's possible that our current political leaders could be so corrupt? I mean, can you believe how corrupt they are? Well, my basic answer to that is our leaders basically reflect the citizenry that they're called to lead. It's because we're corrupt as a people that our leaders are also corrupt. They serve as a reflection of who the people are. And I believe the same principle holds true here as well, right? The fact that Joshua is filthy essentially means that all of God's people are filthy. Because again, he represents all of God's people. And this is the reason why Satan appears out of the shadows. He knows what's at stake here, right? He knows that God's, uh, God has called his people to rebuild his holy temple. And if you're Satan, that, that's the last thing you want to see happen because he understands the important role God's temple plays in the spiritual development of God's people throughout history. You should know this, but God's temple is often used synonymously with God's people throughout the Bible. Right? First Corinthians chapter three, for instance, says, do you not know that you are God's temple? Right? Talking to God's people here. You, God's people. Right? You are God's temple. And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. And again, you are that temple. So if Satan could make the case 
that filthy, unclean people are not only unworthy to be in God's presence inside his holy temple, but they're also unqualified to partake in the work of building God's holy temple. I mean, that's what God's people were expected to do in this time. Then guess what? That, that would be a huge win for Satan, would it not? But doesn't he know that he, he's not going to win? I mean, I'm sure some of you have wondered this right, as you're reading Scripture and, and kind of seeing how Satan acts. I mean, doesn't Satan know? Or you may question in your mind. Doesn't, doesn't he know that he's not going to win in the end? I'm sure he does. I'm sure he does know. But even if he knows that he can't ultimately win in the end, I'm thinking this. What if... He loves to play the role of the accuser because he has clearly seen that his sly tactics have worked against us in varying degrees. His tactics have an effect on us. Or what if he loves to exploit our weakness, right? What if he loves to drive us deeper into feelings of guilt and shame simply because that's what evil delights in. That's who he is. Maybe he can't help it. That's what evil does. Brothers, sisters, we need to know who our enemy is and what tactics he loves to use. His target audience may change from one generation to the next, but his basic tactics remain the same. Let me mention just a few of his tactics, okay? Satan, he loves to make us question our identity in Christ by creating doubt in our minds, this lingering doubt, kind of eats away at us gradually, right? Have you ever entertained this thought in your mind because maybe someone has placed it in there or maybe you have just kind of doubted just on your own? How can you say, brother, how can you say, sis, I won't, I'm not going to name any names, okay? Just, you can insert your own name there. I'm not going to be that mean today. It's already gloomy. I don't make your day more gloom, or gloomier than it is already, right? How can you say that you're a Christian when you always fail to live up to God's standards, huh? How can you say that you're a Christian? How many times have you received that kind of accusation? Maybe from a friend or a parent, a spouse. How can you say that you're a Christian, huh? Satan also loves to prevent us from forming genuine godly relationships. How can anyone love you when they eventually find out about your past mistakes? You will just end up alone and rejected once they find out, right? Once you are found out, you will be rejected. Don't open up to anyone. These people will judge you based on your past. You're better off keeping your secrets and remaining isolated, closed off. How many times have you heard that accusation? Satan also loves to paralyze us and stunt our personal growth. Look, I understand you may want to change and get better, but your past is what defines you. Don't you know that you will always be that same person? Or, how about this? Yes, God does forgive, 
But are you sure that you're gonna be able to forgive yourself for what you've done? Or how about this? Why would anyone trust you with any responsibilities? Because your past will eventually catch up to you and everything, once again, once people find out who you truly are, everything will fall apart like they always do. Oh, that was kind of heavy, even for me. Right? I don't like to hear those words. Satan is a great accuser. He loves to accuse. He loves to create doubt. He loves to cause fear and isolation. That's who he is. That's what he does. There's one very well-known Baptist preacher named Charles Spurgeon, right? Uh, from a different century. He once wrote this, truly, dear friend, if Satan wants to accuse us, any page of our history, any hour of any day will furnish material for his charges. See, yesterday you were impatient. The day before you were proud. Another day you were slothful or another angry. Oh, what a den of unclean birds the human heart is. If the old accuser wants reasons for accusation, he may indeed find as many as he wills and continue to accuse as long as ever he pleases, for we are all together as an unclean thing. But here's the more important question, okay? What are we to do? What are we to do, brothers and sisters, when these kinds of damaging accusations are leveled against us? See, these same accusations have haunted me throughout my own life. And some of you know this, but there was a point where I nearly left the ministry because of the doubt and worry that began to plague my own heart. Right? It wasn't during my time here, in case you're wondering. It was right before I got here. Right? So thank you for hiring me. Right? Before I got here, I was, I was plagued with doubt and worry questioning my calling based on the inadequacies I witnessed in my own life. Paul, you know, the fact that these churches you're applying to really don't want you must mean that you're not qualified to be a pastor. Right? One kind of accusation. Paul, if you can't properly provide for your family, that means basically that you're an incompetent person and if you're incompetent to provide for your own family, how do you expect to provide for God's larger family, huh? Another kind of accusation. And I'm sure some of our own officers, elders and deacons, and ministry leaders, maybe a CG leader or, or a DG leader, or maybe you're serving in, in other contexts, perhaps, perhaps that's one reason why you're so hesitant to volunteer to serve in children's ministry, huh? You struggle with such accusations as well. I'm sorry to do this to you, elders and deacons, but if you are an elder and deacon, right, have you ever been plagued by this kind of accusation? How is it possible that with your past, with your past, you became an elder or a deacon? I guess your church really doesn't know you that well, huh? In the midst of such 
verbal assaults, how should we respond? Okay, I think it's important to understand how Jesus responds to these accusations. That's where we get our cues, right? We have to first see how Jesus responds. And this may surprise some of you, but I want you to notice, first and foremost, that Jesus does not deny that we are a filthy people. In fact, after rebuking Satan, right, he says, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you, Satan. He says, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now, I don't like the ESV translation here, right? I'm gonna side with Pastor Hugh today. Like, on this one, I don't like the ESV translation because it's kind of like, like who, who uses the word brand anymore, right? What, what's a brand? Well, if you didn't know, a brand is a charred piece of wood. Okay, that's what a brand is. Now, some translations read more naturally, is not this a burning stick snatched from the fire? I think you probably received that better, right? Is this not a burning stick snatched from the fire? Referring to God's people. (laughs) Referring to you and to me. I wonder how many of you ever thought of yourself as a burning stick snatched from the fire. Next time you go speak with your professional counselor, right? maybe you're a psychologist, ask him or her if that's a healthy self-image to have. And if your counselor says, that is just a terrible self-image to have, you shouldn't think that way, then guess what? My advice is that you should find a different counselor, okay? Find a different counselor. He or she is not wise enough. Look, there aren't that many things filthier than a burning stick, okay? So Jesus, he does not deny the fact that we're filthy. If you touch a burning stick, and if you show your hands to the people around you, what do they do? They go, get away from me, get away, because they don't want that to rub off on them. So Jesus is not denying our filth, and the rest of Scripture confirms this kind of filth. Psalm 14:3, for instance, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, Pastor Xiong's favorite Scripture passage, If you want to know why, just go and ask him. Have a conversation. Get to know him, okay? It says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Okay, so the reason why Jesus rebukes Satan is not because Satan is wrong about our filth. He's right about that. But he rebukes Satan because He's wrong to accuse God's elect. He's wrong to accuse the people whom God specifically chose. Right? The passage once again says, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a burning stick that I have chosen to snatch out from the fire? This basically means, brothers and sisters, that God specifically chose to rescue us from the fire of hell that we all deserve to perish in. 
unless we try to take any credit for this, let me remind you that he chooses us not based on anything that we have done, but simply based on his sovereign will. I've done a whole series on this, right, going over the doctrines of grace. But the point here is that we're to understand, because God makes it very clear to us, that in God's heavenly court, God's people, his elect, cannot be condemned. Right? Romans 8, 31 and on, if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Right? You can't condemn God's elect. God already justified them. You can't count them guilty. He already sanctified them. And that's an amazing act of grace, the fact that God chose us in such a way. And as, as good as that may sound, the act of God's election is only the first act of grace that we see in this vision. The, the second act of grace uh, is in how he removes our filthy garments that have been singed by fire. Right? He didn't say, he didn't just say that he chose us and that's it. No, there, there's there's practical follow-up that takes place, right? There's this act of removing our filthy garments to get it off of us. But there's yet another act of grace we see in this vision, and that is the act of pure vestments given to us as new clothing. In Christian theology, this transaction has been called the doctrine of double imputation, okay? First, there's the imputation of sin, where our sin, our filth is imputed to Jesus and counted as his, right? It's now his to deal with. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, right? Our filth is transferred to him. But there's also the imputation of righteousness where Jesus' perfect righteousness is imputed to us and counted as our own, right? Even though we are inherently sinful and like a burning stick plucked from the fire, see how 2 Corinthians 5.21 ends. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. And so there's this transaction that takes place. We call that in Christian theology double imputation. Right? You might not think that's important, but the only way, brother and sister, the only way that you would be okay with viewing yourself as a burning stick snatched from the fire of hell is if you are fully confident in the fact that you are no longer clothed with filth because of the amazing grace that the doctrine of double imputation speaks of. That's the only way. And here's one way you can assess whether you really believe in this stuff or not, okay? When Satan's accusations plague you, how do you tend to respond? Do you say, okay, Satan, you may be right about my past, but I am working very hard right now to make up for my past mistakes. I am trying 
as hard as I can, to work hard, to do all this ministry, can't you see? And as you work so hard, right, your focus quickly shifts away from, from what Christ has done for you or to what you're doing to, to right your own wrongs. And that is, I have to say, it's one form of self-righteousness. And others may try to justify themselves by pointing to how successful their marriage may be or their, their kids turn out. It's like, I may have messed up in the past. I know that I've, I've sort of disappointed so many people. I've definitely screwed up, but look, I'm gonna make sure that at least my kids turn out all right. You see? Didn't you notice I just sent my first one to UVA? What about that? Take that, right? And by doing so, once again, you shift the focus away from what Christ has done for you to whatever earthly accomplishments people may applaud you for. I think you'll appreciate this story of how Martin Luther, the great German reformer, battled against Satan's accusations during his time. Okay, let me read an account. Wartburg Castle is where Martin Luther was taken for refuge after his heroic stand at the Council of Worms. Okay, for those who may not know, the Council of Worms was where Luther was asked to recant his views regarding certain Catholic teachings. And uh, he gave a speech that ended with these words. I neither can nor will retract anything, for it cannot be either, for it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand, and I cannot do otherwise. God help me, amen. And after that, the Catholic Church excommunicated him after deeming him a heretic. And then he had to take refuge in, I guess, Warburg Castle. And that is where he was actually, it says, he was very productive. But he also felt himself suffering at the hands of the devil. He wrote to his friend Philip Melanchthon on May 24th, 1521, about a spiritual depression he had experienced, one in which he dreamed that Satan appeared with a very long scroll on which his many sins were written with care, each of them read one by one, all the while Satan mocked his pathetic desire to serve God, assuring him that after all he would do, he would still end up in hell. Luther writhed in spiritual agony until at last he jumped up and cried, it is all true. Everything that you've written is true, Satan. And many more sins which I have committed in my life, which are known to God only. But write this at the bottom of your list. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all our sin. Then grasping an inkwell from his table, Luther threw it at the devil, who thus fled, leaving the black spot on the wall 
that bears testimony to his deliverance still. Brothers and sisters, do you have any black marks in your home? Any marks that you've battled with the devil? Whenever Satan assaults us with his accusations, we too should shift our focus to the pure vestments Jesus has newly clothed us with instead of dwelling upon our past blemishes or trying to justify ourselves with our own accomplishments, which are no different from the fig leaves that our first parents tried to cover themselves with. In your struggles, I want to encourage you to remember 2 Corinthians 5.17, where we are told that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, right? The old has gone, the new has come, right? When Satan tries to cast doubt in your minds, learn to respond with 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? The old has gone, the new has come, right? Paul, how can you be serving in God's church dressed in such filth? My response is, Satan, I rebuke you. The old Paul is dead. I am a new creation in Christ. And throwing ink on, in the wall is optional. If you want to do that, fine. If any of you struggle with a lack of confidence in your abilities to serve because of your broken past, and I know many of you have this broken past, and it plagues you. Trust me, some parts of my history, they, they still plague me. It's a battle. It's a mental, spiritual battle. But I hope this story will serve you well. I, I heard this story from an older camp pastor who I used to serve under. You can remember it as the story of the wooden rice scooper, okay? It's a story of the wooden rice scooper. This pastor once shared of how a church member gifted him with this wooden rice scooper, but he said, Pastor, Moksanin, Pastor, this rice scooper is no ordinary rice scooper. This, this rice scooper is very special. And the pastor thought to himself, how can, how can a rice scooper be special? Come on, right? And the member continued, this rice scooper was made from a tree that was struck by lightning, and it was made to last for a thousand years. If you didn't know, normally wooden rice scoopers don't last very long because, as, as you know, wood and moisture, they don't work well together, right? And so that's why most people, they, they don't buy wooden scoopers. They buy what? Plastic rice scoopers, right? Now, whether or not this special rice scooper could last a 1,000 years, who knows, right? That's unverifiable. But the point is that the lightning strike that was thought to have permanently damaged the wood actually changed something about the structure of the wood that made it more enduring, more resilient. And so what I wanna leave you with is this thought, brothers and sisters, if, if you struggle with a sense of unworthiness because you have been stricken in some way in the past, Please understand that your past brokenness need not be seen as a liability. It could very well be that your past brokenness has given you the tenderness of heart to actually receive 
God's grace. And it is God's grace, after all, that transforms us, does it not? It transforms us and makes us into people who are able to last forever in his presence. Did God ever say that he would only use perfect wood pieces to build his house? If you ever find that passage, please share it with me. I haven't found one yet. It doesn't say that. No, the, the only perfect piece in God's house is Jesus Christ, who serves as the cornerstone of the house. All the other pieces are, guess what? Burnt sticks snatched from the fire. And these sticks are continually being perfected by God. So if you have a blemished past, it's okay. okay? It's okay. There's no need to be discouraged. The truth is that God loves to use blemished pieces to build his house. That's what makes his house actually overflow with grace, love, and mercy, does it not? So don't, don't be discouraged. I, I pray that God would use this season to build your faith up. That's the purpose of Zechariah here. God is calling us to rebuild our lives and rebuild our faith. And once again, serve the Lord with joy and serve his people with delight. I pray that God will offer you such a season of rebuilding. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you recognizing our unworthiness, knowing that Joshua the high priest stood before you in filthy garments representing the fallen state of all your people. We acknowledge that without your grace, we are truly unfit to stand in your presence. We're ill-equipped for the holy work of building your temple. We've all fallen short, and our past mistakes and sins have left us feeling unworthy and burdened with guilt. Yet, in the midst of our brokenness, we find hope and assurance in Jesus, our judge and defender, who confronts the accusations of the accuser, Satan, declaring that we have been plucked from the flames, not because of any good that we have done, but because of his sovereign mercy. So Lord, we thank you for this message of hope and redemption. And as we just heard the gospel preached through your word, we now turn our attention to the gospel that is visibly displayed to us through your table, that we may not only hear, but also see and taste that the Lord is good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.